Hi everybody and welcome to the Grown Up Girls Report Book Club. We are talking about an incredible book this week and I'm talking about it with an incredible lady. I am talking about American and Dirt with my lovely friend Katie Hislop. Hi doll. Hello. Now you guys have met Katie before. Katie, you came on very early in the podcast and talked about women in the workforce and getting back to work and that was yeah. such a great episode. Well, I'm glad you thought so. Yeah, no, it, it was really good. I had so much great feedback. But today you're wearing a different hat. A very different hat. A very different hat. A book club hat. Yes. So, um, so great to have Katie on um, and to talk about this this book, Katie. Wow, what a book. What a book. Indeed. What a book. So if you haven't yet got yourself a cup of tea or coffee or a caffeinated product, I recommend you do that now because it's the sort of discussion that I think needs a little bit of caffeine. Or wine. Yeah, or <laughs> even better, my friend. Even better. Wine would be even better. So this book, this book, I, I, you know, one minute it punches you in the guts, you feel yeah. of despair, and you turn the page and the next minute your body is full of hope and delight and it takes you on a ride that I don't think I've experienced in, in a while. Would you, would you agree with that? I, I would agree, although I am very glad that you asked me to do this book with you because I was two months into reading it and still only probably halfway through it. And can I, I ask, really, sorry, yeah. why do you think you paused? Oh, no, no, I wasn't pausing. Oh, okay. I was chipping away. Chipping and it's away. not because it's a bad book mm. or a difficult book to read. I think it's a very well-written book. It is. It is a page-turner, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, in fact, when when you told me a week ago that I had to read it by today, <laughs> I got through it incredibly quickly. But it is a, it's very heart-wrenching and, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the themes, but those themes are, are difficult um, to, to kind of deal with mm. at 10 o'clock at night yes, when you I are then wanting to go to sleep. I agree with that. So it's, I'm very glad that I've read the book, but you need to be in a particular headspace, I think, to actually be able to get through it. Mm. Mm. I know. I, I totally agree with that. I feel like this book has, has opened my eyes. I feel mm -hmm. embarrassed that I didn't know as much yep. about, I suppose, the migrant journey that a lot of people go on from, yep. you know, South America trying to cross those borders. I I feel I feel quite, uh, yeah, a bit embarrassed and a bit shameful that I didn't really appreciate it. But I think for me the beauty of this book is that it is about the migrant journey and mm -hmm. that it doesn't just have to be relevant to America. I mean, no. we have in Australia, I we have, you know, a lot of people that want to come and, and seek asylum here. They want a safer life. They want something better for their families. So yeah. the themes um, in this book are still very relevant Absolutely. to us. And I think that's that's what I really what I really loved about it. I loved the fact that it was gripping, um, yes. that it dealt with um, injustice. And it it's all about human determination, yes. you know, and self-determination and the, the power of perseverance. Mm -hmm. And that's very inspiring. That's very, very, very inspiring. But I think, Katie, before we get into it, we both need to say, we had two white ladies yes. discussing this book. So I absolutely acknowledge my white privilege. Yeah. You know, yes. I really do. And I think that, you know, over the last year, I've really struggled with with talking talking more about race mm -hmm. and the inequity of it. Uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, I, I think I mentioned to you before that I actually had a very big episode uh, public, you know, ready to go that I produced and accompanying blog posts. And I had to pull it for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, but I think at the core of that, I was nervous about mm -hmm. um, being seen to probably be on my soapbox and talk about issues that aren't relevant to me. And I acknowledge that, you yeah. know, I have not been on that journey. But I suppose after reading this book and after seeing the journey that Janine Cummins has been on, mm. which we'll talk about, I sort of feel that I 
I really feel that we have a responsibility to talk about these issues, but acknowledge the lens through which we're seeing it because that's how yeah. we make a change. I um, I was quite nervous about doing this podcast for exactly that reason, mm. because it's one thing to read a book and to have your own ideas about it, but to have those ideas under scrutiny um, can be uh, concerning when you are, as you say, from a position outside of, of the experience, from a position of um, of, of privilege. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, that is what the whole controversy, there of is course. quite a bit of controversy around this book, and that is a lot of what is uh, the problem. Um, and so to, to actually put myself on record in terms of that, uh, I, I was nervous about doing that. Um, uh, but again, we'll talk further about this, but I, I watched something just recently that uh, actually helped me a lot in terms of framing the, um, the discussion uh, to make it a worthwhile exercise. So I think it's, it's a, yeah, absolutely, it's a good thing to be doing. I think it's a good thing to be doing. I think it's a good thing to be doing. So, so Katie, why did we choose this book? Well, actually, I told you you had to read it, <laughs> if I'm being well, very I honest. I handed the book by a friend <gasps> with no narrative on it. So I knew nothing about the book. I didn't know anything about the controversy. I didn't know the story. Uh, so I came to it initially with very um, open mind in terms of it just being a novel sure. and read it initially just as a page turning novel um, with, uh, you know, a, a compelling story to it. And actually, it was only about halfway through that I suddenly got wind of, of some of the issues around the writing of the book. And that made me struggle even more with reading it because sure. then I suddenly thought, how am I supposed to read this? Under what lens yes. am I supposed to be reading this? Yes. So I'm kind of disappointed that I did know about that without just being able to read it. Um uh, but it, but because of that, there has been a bit of a journey for me in terms mm. of kind of exploring ideas, more broad ideas, sure. which has been good. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I had a lot of people recommend this book to me earlier in the year. And again, I'm going to be honest, I was nervous about it for the reasons that I outlined before. But um, it was a, an old friend of mine, the lovely Rachel Mann, who I went to school with, who sent me a message not long ago saying, you know, they loved it in their book club and it was so powerful. And I thought, you know what, what the hell, Alex, be brave, put your big girl pants on, we can, we can, we can do this. So, you know, that was, I suppose it's part of my, 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 in many ways, it's part of my journey as well, wanting to do it because I, I feel like we need to talk about it. But of course, our lovely friend, Oprah. She oh, yeah. has been behind it. And I think that's, I don't think if Oprah, I think if Oprah hadn't been behind it, the book wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah. I think that was a big turning point from it. And she, she has this quote that she says, from the first sentence she was in. Like so many of us, um, this is Oprah's quote, I've read newspaper articles and watched television news stories and seen movies about the plight of families looking for a better life, but this story changed the way I see what it means to be a migrant in a whole new way. Yeah. And that just so encapsulates it, don't yep. you think? I agree. It so encapsulates it. Um, and it's interesting, it's being compared to uh, Grapes of Wrath. Have you read that? I, I am not sure if I have read it. Mm. And if I did, it was so long ago that I actually don't remember Well, that's it very exactly well. me too. I agree. I'm wondering if I read it in the HSC and I have no memory or I blanked mm. it out. Anyway, <laughs> I don't remember. But anyway, I'll tell you really quickly what that's about. It was written by John Stein, John yep. Stein back in 1938, 1939 rather, and um, set during the Great Depression. It's about mm. families that flee Oklahoma for a better life in California. So it's very yep. much about the mi migrant journey as well, yes. but um, obviously set some time ago. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so it was uh, definitely, definitely worth um, us putting some attention into. And obviously when it was also when it was released in 20. 18, um, there was a massive bidding war between all these publishers for it. Yeah. And she was paid a seven-figure 
Yep. Some just for an, an as an advance, not even the final payment. Yes. Um, which is which very was interesting. quite shocking to her, I understand, because her she it's not her first book. I think it's her fourth book. It's her fourth book. Fourth book, and she'd had moderate success. Hmm with her previous books but nothing had prepared her for the for the um bidding war for the for the interest in yeah. what ca- in that that came afterwards so yes absolutely and we had people like Stephen King and mm. got John Grisham you know absolutely just get behind her and just you know were full of accolades about this incredible book and when it launched it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list as it was for for, for many weeks so uh yeah it uh definitely worth talking about. Okay, my friend. So let's just do a little bit of an overview of the story. Uh, no spoilers. If you're listening and you haven't read it, there will be no spoilers, but we just want you to know what we're going to talk about. Yeah. So do you want to start, Joel? So the the story broadly, and, and it's not a spoiler to say that the opening scene is that Lydia is a, um, a middle, middle class um, Mexican woman with family in Acapulco. Um, she owns a bookstore. Uh, is, her husband's a journalist. And the, the story opens with uh, the family at a 15th birthday party for one of her nieces and 16 of the 18 members are gunned down. Oh. And she is then put in a position where she needs to, she's on the run, she mm. needs to escape because it's the drug cartels that are, are responsible and they will not stop until she is also um, killed and her eight-year-old son. So she and her eight-year-old son leave Acapulco, um, which is down on the southeast, southwest coast of Mexico, to try to, to, to on the migrant journey, basically, mm-hmm. to try to get to America. Uh, and it is their journey um, dealing with the trauma that they've, you know, been through, um, the perils of the journey itself, the community that they try to build, yes, yes, um, the people that they need to avoid, um, and and ultimately, they're crossing a border mm. to try to get to America. Mm. So that's that's the journey. Yeah, no, absolutely, the absolutely. The other interesting thing I think about the story is that um, so Lydia has this bookstore, and in this bookstore she has a selection of her favourite books, which she sort of realises she's not going to sell, but she keeps them there just because I think she likes to do a bit of a dip in and dip out, and hopefully someone will come in and buy them one day. But anyway, one day this man enters the bookstore to browse, and he comes up to the register with four books he would like to buy. Two of them are in this favourite category of hers. And she meets Javier. Now, Javier is charming and he's charismatic and they have this instant connection. They've become like, I suppose, Anne of Green Gables would say they're kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and they and he stays for coffee and you could, you know, I think it's fair to say that he falls in love with her mind and probably her, but it, it is a platonic arrangement. But unbeknownst to Lydia, Javier is the head of the newest drug cartel in town and has gruesomely taken over the city. Now, I'm going to say Los Jardinos. Los Jardinos. My Spanish is yes, going to be any better. <laughs> Can I apologise for all of that right now because it's it's not good? But Los Jardinos. Okay, it's good. Apologies, to me. apologies. Might be Jardinos. Jardinos. Yes, yes, of course it would be because of Javier. Los Jardinos. Let's do yep. that. I like that. Thanks, Tom. Um, anyway, so so Lydia's husband is actually a, a journalist. And he has got a real interest or passion for trying to expose the drug cartels which are ruining mm. Acapulco. So he writes this tell-all profile of Javier and his crimes. 
And uh, in retaliation for that, Javier actually orders the slaughter of Sebastian and, and his family, which is the massacre which the book mm. opens with. They escape, and as you say, that that trip they take, that treacherous trip on La Bestia, B-E-S-T-I-A, I can spell it, um, which are basically freight trains that make their way yeah. north. They jump on and off trains. They, I mean, Luca does things that eight-year-old boys would never even, mm. I mean, no human would even think about doing. Um, and all with, and all of this occurs with Javier's men nipping at their heels, yeah. I suppose, well, in their mind, that's what occurs. Yeah, anyway, but she makes this really interesting quote that, you know, despite the university, despite her university degree and life savings, she has no access to the kind of information that real has real currency on this journey. Mm. So how to jump onto the roof of Bestia, the lethal freight trains traveling north, how to find a trustworthy coyote to smuggle them into America and how to avoid notice and keep on running. Mm. So, yes, yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, uh, and some, again, some of the criticism around this book will center on stereotypes. Yes. Uh, so ironically, Lydia is not necessarily a stereotype of a migrant. No, she's not. Out of Mexico. And that is one of the biggest criticisms. I think the yeah. average migrant woman leaving Mexico is usually a woman that's found herself as a victim of domestic violence. Yes. That is, yeah. yeah. And so she, ironically, she's not a stereotype indeed. in that sense. Indeed. However, she, because of her privilege, because of her um, fairly sheltered, and ironically, given her husband is a journalist, and, and in Mexico, if you're a journalist, it's an incredibly unsafe profession. Absolutely. Apparently, I was. I noticed that um, reporters sans frontier, I didn't know there was such a thing, but yeah. they report that Mexico is the second most dangerous place in the world oh gosh. For, uh, for a journalist. Yeah, right. Um, so even though she's married to a guy who is reporting on drug cartels, she is a very, she's in a bubble. She is. Um, and that's part of her journey as well to, to be able to um, really understand the life of a huge proportion, well, not proportion, but huge number of people who are not in privilege and escaping. She's put into that same Indeed. position of these people who are, who are escaping poverty. That's right. They're escaping the drug cartels as well. They're escaping... Um, Often uh, violence. Vic- yeah, violence, yeah. Uh, victims of rape, all sorts. Like, mm. But she is put into Indeed that out is. of her bubble. Exactly. Uh, so it's a it's an interesting environment that she's her, isn't it? put into. Yes. It sure is. It sure is. And let's talk a little bit more about this controversy. But before we do so, I just want to say right from the start that I have seen a lot of interviews that she has done, yeah. as I know you have, and yeah. I've read a lot of interviews in which she's been um, she's been quizzed. And she acknowledges right from the get-go that she doesn't actually know if she is the right person to tell this story. That In fact, that's a direct quote from her. She was worried that her privilege would make her blind to certain mm. truths. But she's made it very clear, though, that she felt compelled, um, Get unqualified and so she felt like she had to do it and I actually was watching one of the interviews she did um, that during her study of of, of the migrant trail she uh, spoke with a scholar from the Chicano Studies Department at the St. Hugo State University and she was sharing some of her concerns about her white privilege and her I suppose her um, qualification to tell the story and this scholar said to her Janine no no you must you must reframe it we actually need every voice we can telling mm. the story. Please, you you will be doing the world a favour effectively. And that's what compelled her to, to keep on keeping on. So, yeah. And I'm very glad she did. She also said that um, she was afraid to write the story. Uh, but when she, I mean, she did an amazing amount of research on this oh, book. Yeah. Five, five years. years. 
She she was uh, working at soup kitchens. Mm-hmm. She was working with um, migrant services. She went to Mexico numerous, numerous times. times. Met with people who were on the journey and who had finished their journey. Uh, she spoke to people who had had their children snatched from their oh. arms. Oh. Uh, people who had been sent back from America because they were undocumented. Uh, she worked with human rights abuse lawyers and on human rights um, advocates on the border. A huge amount of research and conversation went into this book. And she said that she was afraid to write this book. Mm. But when she looked at the courage that was required for these people, she felt that she needed to have the courage to write the book, mm. to, to, to give a stories. voice yeah. to those stories. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's so interesting. And I also saw that she um, she says that, you know, still to this day, it still nags at her whether, you know, whether she still is the right person. Mm. Um, and she's con- she was concerned about being seen to be opportunistically seizing on a humanitarian crisis and about, I suppose, cultural appropriation. Yes. But she thought that the bigger picture was that she could make a change. So she so she, so she continued. But interestingly, as we said before, so when the, when the book was launched, Oprah got behind it. Steve, yep. King, Stephen King got behind it. John Grisham got behind it. There were even even um, writers are Latino writers, but actually before we use the word Latino, Katie, we need to just, you just need to update me with some insight. We actually don't refer to female writers as Latino writers if we're being particularly PC. Well, I think there's been a, a new language mm, that's as a result I've of been, this. <laughs> I've been uh, highlighted. So Latinx. Latinx. So we take out the, um, the male Latino, female Latina, and mm-hmm. it's Latinx, which is all-encompassing. All-encompassing. Okay, mm. thank you for that. Okay, going forward, we'll be using that term. Thank you, my friend. Um, but there were some Latinx uh, writers that actually came out and predicted the world, the book would be change hearts and transform policies. Erica Sanchez, Renya Grande, and Julia Alvarez. There's another well-known um, Latinx author, Sandra Cisneros, who wrote a best-selling book called The House on Mango Street, and she hoped that the book could highlight the obstacles migrants face particularly for my American readers who might otherwise be indifferent. So there was, there, there, and before we get into the negativity, I just want to make a point that there was a lot of positivity. Yeah, there absolutely. Was. There were a lot of people that were saying this is going to be transformational. Yeah. You know? Talking about how well written it was, how engaging yes, the story was. Absolutely. And how it was, in, you know, it, it exploring um, a, a, a journey that isn't often given light. Exactly right. Exactly right. And um, this other author, Cisneros, said that we are always looking for the great American story. And this is the great story of the Americas at a time in which borders are blurred, which is so incredibly relevant, particularly mm. because of the political situation. The other thing I want to throw in is that the book has already been option for a movie adaptation by a guy called Charles Levitt who wrote uh, Blood Diamond and a company called Imperative Entertainment who produced Clint Eastwood's The Mule. So there's a lot of there was a lot of positivity and a lot of hope that this was a great vehicle for change. But then there was the criticism. Yeah. I think um, there were a lot of people who felt that at a a more generic level that the stereotypes were not helpful to a broader population, that it it painted Mexico in a negative light around, you know, focusing on the drug cartels, the violence, things like that. But also the fact that it was a non-Latinx writer writing of the Latinx migrant story, somebody who hadn't been through that immigration process, refugee process themselves, Um, there was a lot of hurt Indeed. that that story had not been um, allowed to be told by 
by a Latinx writer. Absolutely. And in fact, there are books that have been written by Latinx, Latinx writers, I can't pronounce it now. No, either of them sounds great. Um, that have not had the, the, the publicity, the marketing power, the, the promotion to have this sort of uh, opportunity. And so there, there's a disquiet about the fact that the, the Latinx voice is being taken from them and appropriated, I guess, is the reality. Into the body of a white woman. Exactly. She's been given the platform over them. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. The fact, obviously, she grew up in Maryland and up until 2016, she described herself as being a white woman. But in 2016, she changed her, I suppose, her cultural definition of herself and says she is now of a Latinx background because her grandmother, her paternal grandmother was Puerto Rican. Yeah. But that wasn't enough for people. And people think, I think a lot of people thought that was a little bit gratuitous and a little bit opportunistic. But what I want to say is that I feel like the criticism of Janine, once it started, it's like the floodgates opened and she yep. couldn't do anything right. You know, I really I think, feel that. Um, the thing that uh, I found incredibly helpful was actually watching the Oprah Winfrey Book Club. They, they did a, a um, show mm. on, it's on Apple TV mm-hmm. now, uh, where she invited Janine and three Latinx writers on uh, to discuss the, and basically it was discussing not the book, but the controversy around mm. the book um, and giving voice to each of those parties. And what I came away from that was, with, from that, was that uh, Janine was absolutely shaken. She had no uh, expectation of, of the criticism in the way she said, I, I would wear that it wasn't a good book, that it wasn't well written, that, you know, any of that. Um, but she, it became very personal, it did. and uh, and and she really hadn't set out to to take away anything. She was trying to open up a discussion. But the other thing that I took away from that from the Latinx writers is that they were yes they were angry with her, but they were angry more with the publishing houses. Mm-hmm. The fact that none of them were being picked up for their stories, that they weren't being sought out. Um, that they, you know, that even Oprah, they were they were very angry with Oprah for for um, uh, promoting this particular book when Oprah has not promoted a Latinx book um, throughout her series, and so they were quite angry with her as mm. well. Mm. Um, but Janine was the easy, and the book were the easy ways of tearing that down. Mm. Um, and I was very appreciative of the that conversation, of that discourse to kind of clarify in my own mind what sure. the, that it's not necessarily about who is allowed to write these stories because that that became one of my big issues. Yeah, if, of course. If this is the case, who is what stories are any of us allowed to tell? Of course. Novel stories yeah. is, is Hilary Mantle around allowed to write for Thomas Cromwell is is the book I'm just reading now of Jodie Picoult who is a white American allowed to write about a white supremacist male and a black midwife. Absolutely, Katie. Absolutely. Um, no, so I agree. Was, I found it really helpful to see them all put on the stage to talk through it and actually come to a realisation that a lot of it is more around who is allowed not to, to have the voice but to how that voice is promoted. Mm. So of the three Latinx authors that were there, uh, I think it was Renya Grande actually said that she felt hurt and undervalued. Mm. And the quote, which is gets to the heart of what you are saying before, was because the publishing industry does not 
not have the same attitude with our immigrant stories as they did with yeah. yours. And the other one, Julissa Arke said, my issue is not Janine's book, really. My issue is with a public publishing industry that systematically silences us by keeping us off the bookshelves. As a Latino, she actually says Latinos, um, I'm very often asked to make my stories more relevant and to make them more accessible. When the publishing industry is 80% white, mm. what I am really being asked to do is make my stories more relevant to white people. And I think that sums it up. There are so many cultural structures in place that have contributed to this situation. You know? And the other interesting thing I took from the from the Oprah um, show was that they had two of the publishers, the two publishers there. And Wasn't Macmillan and, and Flat, Fa- Flat Fox? Flat, Flat Fearon, is it? I'm yeah. not going to say it correctly, but yes. Um, and one of the, one, another criticism was that, I mean, I think it's a, a really interesting t- uh, uh, cover on the book. Oh, yes, but hasn't that created controversy? However, one of the controversies was that um, at one of the book launches, I think it was, they had centrepieces on the table that were flowers sur- wrapped in paper with barbed, barbed wire. wire. Yep. And the comment was... How is there not one single person in that publishing house, in that room, in that event that did not recognise the insensitivity mm. of that mm. as a as a decoration Absolutely. and the the representation of trauma? Yes. How can you be so so blinded, so kind of homogenous that there was not one voice that said that didn't realise that was going okay? To, that's yeah. not going to work. Mm. Uh, and they they took it on. They they uh, it was interesting to see the uh, the chastisement, the the apology, and the referencing to how they hope to um, further promote the mm. Latinx voice. Mm. And that's what I think is the great thing. This is in a way, uh, Janine said she was looking for the eyes to be opened, the mind to be opened. Um, it's exactly what's happening, Katie. And the shame is that it's done in such a kind of. De- divisive tone. I think that it would be nice if we could have these conversations, not just about a book, but more generally, be nice if we could have these conversations with more um, trying to come together rather than tearing a line through and tearing people down. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. I believe that we us all, we are all so invested in this culture of outrage, mm, don't I you agree. think? And, yeah. you know, if something goes wrong, we have to feel like outraged about something or we have to feel really upset and we're really concerned and we're really distressed. And I feel like if we took things down three or four notches mm. and actually just took a deep breath and actually fired up our respect and our desire to make things better and just toned it down, we would actually have a much better outcome. I think outrage culture is actually very damaging. I and I think a lot of outrage culture is actually manifesting itself in exactly what's happening to Janine Cummins. And I I think it's just it's devastating I and i know we, we talked about it earlier that you know she is not in a great place no as a result of being on the receiving end of all of this criticism yeah and this was a woman that i i really don't believe was looking at this opportunistically she no. really wanted to make a change she really felt like she could do something different and you know full credit to her but i feel like people just need to take it down a notch yeah. and be very respectful and they're not and it's yeah. very disappointing it's very disappointing really mm. feel disappointed by it but Let's talk a little bit more about Janine because she's a really, really interesting girl. She was actually born in Spain. Mm-hmm. 
and because her father was a, was in the Navy there. And then she came back to the US and studied in Maryland and then spent two years in Ireland where she worked as a barmaid, bartender rather. And she said she wrote terrible poetry. That was her description. <laughs> Maybe that's what Javier's really <laughs> Exactly. I think it probably is, actually, because, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. some terrible poems, Terrible apparently. poetry. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but then she, when she moved back to the US, she found herself working um, in the sales department at Penguin, which is probably where it all started, her Quite literary possibly. journey. And then she, when she was there, she published her first book, which is a really interesting book, but a tragic book called mm. um, uh, R.I.P. in Heaven. And it was actually about a tragedy that struck her family in 1991 when her brother and two female cousins were attacked on a bridge in St. Louis. And her cousins ended up, well, they were raped and they died. It was dreadful, fell off mm. the bridge or pushed off the bridge. But her brother, Tom, survived. And initially he wanted to co-author the book with her, but I think it was all too traumatic for him, so he had to pull back. But she actually says that writing and researching about the crimes was actually in many ways, I suppose, a bit of a preparation for writing about trauma in American Dirt. Mm. She learned how to write about trauma in a way that didn't feel gratuitous or sensational. And she wanted to take the stories away from the perpetrators and give them to the survivors. Mm. And that to me is what she's done in American Dirt to yeah, some degree. And interestingly, I also read that she um, she found that process so difficult that she um, felt that she could never write nonfiction again. Wow, okay. Uh, so that will be her only nonfiction. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. At this stage anyway. Yeah. Uh, and that's why she then turned to fiction. Yeah, interesting because, yes, she then wrote two other novels called The Outside Boy and The Crooked Branch. And, and as, I, as we said before, they had, they had moderate success. Yes. I, I, have, I don't know a lot about them, but they yes. had moderate success. But then she began researching this novel about immigration seven years ago um, and she envisaged it with this cast of characters and border patrol agents and American citizens living near the southern border. But she did two drafts and she just didn't really feel like they came together. Did you see her interviewed <laughs> so, about this? And she said, I had two, I had friends that I would pass the drafts by and they were very kind <laughs> and told me it was rubbish. Oh, oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I also saw that um, she also said that she felt like she was really just tippy-toeing around the whole migrant story, that she really was, mm. she was nervous about getting her teeth yep. stuck into it and very understandably so. But then when she included the character of Lydia yes. into the story, that's when it all came together. Yeah. So the one character that survived through all three stories was Luca. Interesting. Uh, Luca was the character that everybody responded to and wanted to oh. see what happened um, with him. Um, so maybe in all of us, it was that mothering maybe concern for an eight-year-old child yeah. to know whether or not he he survives a journey. Yeah. Um, but he is the one that that stayed true Isn't through that the interesting. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And then she tells the story that just before the 2016 presidential election, she experienced another family tragedy when mm -hmm. her father died suddenly from a heart attack and she was bereft and, and, and devastated and she spent months in mourning unable to write. But then one day she pulled out a laptop and she wrote the opening of American Dirt, which I have to say is one of the best openings to a book I think I've ever read. Yeah. It was just gripping. And this is the scene where Luca and Lydia narrowly survive that, the gunfire that kills Luca's yes. father. And um, and then she finished the draft in less than a year and sold the novel in the spring. So it mm. all just fell into place. Yes. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. So and as a slight aside, um, when she talks about her father dying, she 
references every time that it was only a few weeks before the presidential election yes, of 2016. And she never makes comment about it in any, you know, referencing anything other than it being the election, the presidential election. But I find that really fascinating given the, um, the, Trump policies around oh, Mexico and oh, so on. I, I don't know if there's an underlying commentary that she's making by saying, referencing the elections or not, but I am immediately drawn to that. I'm immediately drawn to that as well. And I act, my, my, my take on it is that she absolutely is. And this is her vehicle. This is mm-hmm. her vehicle. Her, her, the book is her message. The book is her, her yep. vehicle because she wants change and she's clearly appalled, I think, by, yep. what, uh, by what's happened under the Trump administration. Um, and actually, interestingly, um, and, I, and I, you know, I do deep dives on things, Katie, I can't help myself, but you may remember from the 2016 election, one of his big election policies was building the wall with Mexico. Absolutely. So, and we have, we are what, three weeks, two weeks away from the next yeah. American election. And I was trying to get to the bottom of exactly how much of the wall's been built. So let me just actually get my stats. So according to, a, it's very hard to find, let me just tell you, top line, <laughs> but according to a very, uh, very enthusiastic Republican, Trump will have 450 miles finished by the end of 2020. Now, the whole entire border is 2,000 miles. Mm. So, but then other people say, well, that, most of that's repair. It's not really any addition. But then according to the US Customs and Border Protection, as of October last year, 69 miles had been completed. So, yeah, it's very interesting out there that we'll never have a wall. No, it doesn't require a wall. It's Mm. uh, it's incredible. Uh, The other thing, Katie, I just would love to talk about really, really quickly is is that Mexican migrant trail because I, as I said at the start, I had no idea that this was such a big journey. Mm. And so the Mexican migrant trail really goes from I suppose the the south of the Central Americas, so from El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, Guatemala. 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 Sorry, apologies <laughs> again. <laughs> apologies, apologies. All the way up to the border, which is either Tijuana, if you're going to cross near San Diego, or Nogales, or Nogales. Again, apologies, which is if you're going to cross the border near Arizona, which is where uh, Luca and Lydia were heading. So uh, it is two to 3,000 miles. Yeah. And where they start in Acapulco is, if you look at the whole thing, I didn't realise, it's actually only halfway. Mm. And that seemed like the journey, yes. a journey that was incredibly long. What she wanted to do was humanise the migrant journey, and she has done that with great, with great aplomb. And there is a really interesting a book called The Beast by this guy called Oscar Martinez. Martinez, and he actually follows his travels along the migrant trail, and he documents the the, the mistreatment of migrants, the violence, um, the life threatening danger, but most interestingly, the, the the drug cartels. Yes, and there are two major drug cartels in Mexico. I didn't know any of this. Did you, Katie? I I didn't know. Well, I well we all know. We all know there's drug cartels. Yes, of course, indeed. And El Chapo, who was the the largest drug cartel, yes. and and um, uh, you know, imprisoned and then escaped from prison. So you know, I think the thing is that we have this little broad, vague understanding. Netflix but, enhanced idea of it. Let's yeah, be totally exactly, honest, but not not no, detail. No yeah, detail. So, so the the two major ones are again pronunciation is going to be incorrect. Los Zetas and Sinola. Sinaloa, S-I-N-A-L-O-A, and the bulk and so much of their area overlaps with the migrant trails, which makes mm. it even more perilous for, mi- for migrants. But Los Zetas is the most very is the largest and most dangerous, supposedly. And he describes in his book it uh, Los Zetas as being like a metastasizing cancer. Migrants are recruited, soldiers are recruited, policemen, mayors, businessmen, they're mm. all liable to become part of this, become part of this web. Yeah. 
So again, uh, that that panel that was interviewed um, on Oprah, mm -hmm. one of the uh, Latinx women said that she, uh, Oprah asked what they did like about the book. And one of them said that it was an accurate depiction of the violence and the drug, um, the drug cartel monopoly and the inability to trust people, I think, sure. as well. Uh, so in reading that book, it's pretty horrifying. It's terrifying to think terrifying. What, that you can't trust people, that there's this amount of violence that's going on. Absolutely. That we, we are so just unaware of. So unaware. Other than watching Breaking Bad or totally something right. like that. <laughs> exactly right. Or a Netflix show. And yet this I'm, is, this is people's yeah. experience. Absolutely right. No, absolutely right. It's so interesting. And I think the in, the, the the commentary around that is the the um, what people are escaping, the lengths that people are going through in all, and what they are escaping. You don't do this for fun. You're you not doing it just because there's it's the thing you that, want a little adventure yeah or it's, america seems so shinier yeah, and brighter and in fact that not. was one of the quotes in the book that one of the um uh managers at the um shelters for migrants said if you it might have been actually one of the priests but anyway if it you are if you are um doing this because you're looking for a better life turn back now go home this is not the this is not the road that you should be traveling mm. um mm. this is this is a hard road absolutely 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 no i know now one thing i didn't know katie was that um on this migrant trail a lot of migrants actually choose to travel in big packs called mm. caravans yeah so they can have up to four thousand four or five thousand people in this caravan and um when you start to do a bit of a deep dive on this you'll see that you know, there are so many news stories talking about how the mexican government brought the security forces in and used tear gas to break up the latest caravan and they're egged on by the united states so the story that really resonated with me was it was in January this year and it was when um, Mexican authorities used pepper spray on a caravan of 4,000 Central American migrants who tried to enter the country illegally. And what they did is they dangled the possibility of jobs for those that, you know, could come and register and share their details and lured them mm. dishonestly and then basically took them all the way back down to Central America. Um, so this was all, all done in, well, you know, the White House loved this because you can imagine that if they don't have the Central Americans in Mexico, Mexico, there's less people crossing the border. Mm. So, uh, you know, and if you see the footage of, you know, the, the quite brutal strategies and Beautiful. tactics that are used, and I don't know, maybe it's the fact I've had four kids and I'm a big softie, but it, it, it upsets me on a level that I, mm. I I don't remember being upset by. It's just, it's actually heartbreaking. These people have got nothing apart from the shoes on their feet in some cases, not yeah. always. They've got a few bucks in their pocket and they are just full of hope for something better. They're giving everything else up in the, because, because things are so bad. They can't go back in their own mind. You know, and it's I devastating. Think, I think in Australia, there has been a bit of commentary around um, the, the concern that the migrants, it's, sorry, the, the refugees who are coming to our country, mm. uh, uh, the, the, the trek is perilous. Mm. Um, it's expensive, it is dangerous. People are not doing this because it's an easy way exactly into right. a country. They're doing it out of absolute necessity. Yeah. And to talk about uh, economic refugees and to make it sound as though, oh, well, they're just wanting to earn a better paycheck is is quite criminal in many ways because it's, it's blanketly um, casting these refugees as opportunistic when it is far from an opportunistic 
program that they're, they're working through to get there. Um, you have to be leaving something pretty bloody desperate. Absolutely, If this Katie. is what you're prepared to do. Absolutely. To get, to, I mean, whether it's to America or Australia or wherever. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I was reminded while reading this of a show which I think everyone needs to watch called Stateless. Mm, now, this I didn't was, see it. Oh, my God. It was incredible. It was on the ABC earlier in the year, but it's now available on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually it's a six-part series, and it's inspired by the story, actually, of an, of an Australian permanent resident who was yes. um, unlawfully detained uh, for a while in, um, in a det- and under the, the government's mandatory detention program, and that's what spurred the idea for it. But basically, it is it is such a deep dive into our immigration detention system. It follows four strangers. So we have an airline hostess escaping a suburban cult, which is loosely based on the story of Cornelia Rao, who I mentioned mm, before, yep. um, an Afghan refugee fleeing persecution, a young Aussie dad escaping this very dead-end job, and um, this bureaucrat that's caught up in this national scandal around the detention centre. But it is it is, it is, is heartbreaking and it is devastating and it will actually get you thinking in a way that I hadn't before. Um, but I didn't realise that, you know, there are 70 million people every year, every year, seeking sanctuary from war mm. and persecution and only 0.5% of people actually ever find a safe haven. I thought that was just devastating. Sad. And as a country, I didn't realise, and it's again hard to find stats, but I can see over the last 10 years we take in anywhere from 12,000 to 18,000 refugees every year, asylum seekers rather, every year. Um, but since 1945, I think we've, we've taken 900,000. Mm. Anyway, another topic for conversation, but I just thought I'd throw that one in. Mm. So the other thing, Katie, we need to talk about, I suppose, you know, when you normally do a book club, we do probably do more deep dives into characters and form and whatever. And this yes. is a little bit different because of all yeah. the controversy. But I would love to talk really quickly about some of the characters. Yes. So, of course, Lydia is the mother. Yes. The wonderful 32-year-old mother who is just the epitome of mother, mother bear and looking after her 8-year-old son, Luca. But then I would love to also talk about two girls they meet along the way, Rebecca and Soledad. These beautifully, well, I suppose dangerously beautiful Honduran girls yes. who, as, who attract a lot of attention. Yes. And look, we've, we've talked a lot about the problems um, that the book has raised for us and, uh, you know, the, the greater theme of, of immigration refugees. But at the heart of this book is a, a story about a mother and her child and then the relationship that they build with two girls mm. who are escaping violence. Mm-hmm. Um, who are 14 and 15 from memory. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, uh, babies. Very grown-up babies Indeed. in the sense that they um, take, almost take Lydia and Luca under their wing initially. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. Um, to teach them how to get on La Bestia, how exactly. to get on a moving train on its roof. Mm. Um so they they come together and it is a story of survival amongst each other. Indeed it is. Um, they, uh, there's an, uh, an immediate connection between Luca and Rebecca, who is yep. the younger sister. Soledad is almost her, her mother she, in she this situation. She takes definitely. Um, but they go through terrible trauma, both before the story and through the story. Uh, and it is the, whilst... Lydia will do anything for her own son. Um, she is then put in a position to where she needs to make a decision about whether or not to do similarly for Rebecca and Soledad. Mm. 
Um, and so it it is a beautiful story uh, around the relationship mm-hmm. um, born out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they would never have met otherwise. Absolutely not. Uh, but they become very uh, utterly reliant on one mm-hmm. another and become family, mm-hmm. the new family. Uh, and they are in a position where they bring others into Indeed. that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it is the journey of that new family, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. I think it was. I thought it was. I thought it was actually gorgeous to watch. The other character I would love to mention is the uh, highly charismatic eleven-year-old boy called Beto. Yes. Who we meet a little bit later in the book. Yes. And what a character he is. And you know? again, he is adopted in, but at the same time, he is. Um, uh, supporting and and creating situation of sa- salvation for them. Indeed, so is. it's that symbiotic relationship oh, yes. where when you find somebody that you trust, they are your cohort. You you um, and that takes a little bit of time because at the end of the day, their own survival is what they've got to look out for. Mm. But mm. actually, um, there's some really important relationships that are built. Um, and and allow them to survive as yeah. well. It gives them the uh, the purpose absolutely in some part to to carry on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I just wanted to tap into what you were saying before about the two girls. Um, it, you know, their know how and their their I suppose their grittiness and their smarts are very much responsible for Luca and Lydia advancing on the journey. They, I mean, they're yes. the ones that had a coyote lined up at the yes. border. Their, their cousin Caesar had it all sorted. And, you know, Lydia hadn't even, you know, as she says, she had the university degree and, and all, all the middle-class smarts, but not the smarts that would are, were, really the, were really required to survive that. So yes. those girls provided that for her. Yes. And in return for that, she provided... She had money. ...kindness and she had money and um, she was... They wouldn't have got through without her either. No, So very symbiotic, as you say. Um, but the other thing which I loved about the book was it to me it was just such a deep dive into parental love absolutely oh, the love of a mother for her child and yeah. what you what 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 lengths you will go to to protect it yes. and i think that, that that and that kicks off right from the start in that scene where um you know she shoves luca into the corner of the shower yes when the massacre is occurring and curls her body around his during during that traumatic time and then there was that other situation where um, an immigrant agent was um, beating another migrant and she's distracting Luca with trying to work out shapes in the clouds and you know just 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 so beautiful but then it was interesting because she came to a point where she realized that she wanted to protect him but she also had to make him understand that they were in a very dangerous situation mm. so she also needed him to be afraid yeah and I thought she just she just danced that that sweet spot so beautifully with him yes and 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 what an incredible child he developed into. And I know, I know it's fictional, but I don't know. As a, as a mother, and I'm sure you felt the same. I was so proud of him. Um, I really Janine was. Janine said that she had the privilege of having two daughters living with her while she was writing the book. The eldest was eight when she started, and the second was eight when she finished okay. it. And it was so helpful for her to be able to hear that precocious eight-year-old voice yes, around her. Yes, yes. Uh, and and I thought the the fact that his knowledge of places, the maps, yes, yes. was uh, was exactly what a proud 
not necessarily that sort of detail, but the, the information that a proud eight-year-old would like to know, impart I and then know. it had some use in, in what they were doing was quite quite lovely. It was so endearing, wasn't it? It, it was, was so endearing. It was you so can endearing. understand why Luca was the character that endured. I, I can, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I love the fact as well, I mean, it was effectively written by the third person, but then, you know, occasionally Lydia and Luca would come and, and tell things from their perspective. And, and I love the fact that when Luca did that, it was so much through the eyes of an eight-year-old mm. and he'd, you know, use language and he'd have the, the precociousness, I suppose, or the, the naivety of an, of an eight-year-old. And I thought that was so beautifully, so beautifully done. Um, but... You know, she says, Janine says that her goal was only to redeem the humanity of migrants, to Mm. tell a story of singular individuals separate from their representation as a faceless brown mass. Do we think she did this? I do. So do I. Um, I think it's very easy to generalise, to kind of just cast aside a whole group of people when you generalise them. It's very hard to do that when you know an individual and you know an individual story. Uh, and she gave face to that that story mm. uh, that gave a lot of empathy and understanding. And I think she did do that for me anyway. She absolutely did that for me. I mean, um, I don't know if you listened to the episode where um, my lovely friend Louise Talbot and I were talking about where the crawdads sing. Mm. And I think Louise... We were saying, you know, the acid test of a book is, does the book make you a better person? Yes. And I actually think she, and I think the answer to that, yes, this book makes you a better person. It has opened my eyes. Yes. It, my naivety has been pushed to the side. I have still got so much more to learn. Yes. And we still have so much more to do. But I think the world is a better place as a result of this. I feel like I have so much more compassion and empathy and I want to do something and I will be, be rethinking my my. I'll be, I'll be rethinking my, um, my maybe my biases, and um, I, I think she did a tremendous job. And I just hope that people can take their outrage down a couple of not a couple of notches, and appreciate that this book is a powerful vehicle for change. Uh, interestingly, again, uh, in the Oprah, I keep referring to the Oprah Book Club, but uh, the the um, panel asked Janine, "Who did who did you write this for?" And she said. And it was quite, you know, they wanted her to say for white people, of and she did. She did. And she said, they, she said, I wrote this for this audience, for these these people who are here, and they they made some comment um, to. I think they were kind of suggesting that you know it was for white people to have their eyes opened. It wasn't for, mm. and and Oprah turned around, and the audience was full of black Americans, um, Latin Americans. Um, it was a really white American, like yeah. it was a really broad yeah. um, uh, demographic, I imagine, but ethnic mix. And Oprah said, so who who felt that it was written from them? And probably 90% of the audience put their hands straight up and Fabulous. cheered out. So I think that, uh, and and one of the Latinx women stood up and said, this is my story. My, my mother came across that border crossing exactly like that. And it is absolutely the story that was written for me. I am the person it was it was about. So it it is. I mean, I felt as though it was written for me mm. to open my mind. Likewise. To, um, and yet, also there were many many different um, people who felt it was done similarly for them yeah. in that audience. Yeah. And she has a gift, I think. I if, think so. if everyone feels like it was written for them, most people feel like it was written for them and has the ability to change their perspective, then I think she has absolutely achieved that goal. Mm, yeah, exactly. Will you read anything else by her? I'd be interested too. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. I, I, 
I'm not sure about the memoir at the moment, if it's that traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, might start um, with the fiction books. So, yeah. yes, I might start there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. It's a pleasure. This is a book we'd absolutely recommend, don't you think? I would absolutely recommend. I would recommend just making sure you're in a, in a headspace where you can deal with the adrenaline mm. uh, of a of a traumatic journey. No, I agree. And look, it's not, it's not graphic. No, it's, it's not, not graphic. a graphic No, I journey. agree. I agree. It's, it's not, not hard to read in terms of gore or anything no. like that. It is purely that you're on the edge of your seat breathing, mm-hmm. hoping mm-hmm. for somebody to be surviving another day. Absolutely, absolutely. And in I, that sense, it's almost a thriller. I would but actually call, I would call it a thriller. thriller. Yeah, and a personal thriller. But it is also a book of hope. Absolutely. You know, it is not, even though it, 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 there are some traumatic moments, it is definitely a book of hope. It's a book that will warm your soul. And yes. I read it in a day, um, which actually, I think that's such a luxury to read a book in a day. It's like, <laughs> as I said before, like I got an excursion. It was wonderful. So please absolutely read this book. Consider it. There'll be some links to some various resources on the on the website, on the, on the blog post. But um, yeah, absolutely. We loved it, didn't we? We did. Thank you for making me finish it. Not at all, my friend. And thank you for coming and chatting to me. I so appreciate it. You've done a lot of homework. I can tell. So thank you. You go on a deep dive. If you if you enjoy the book, then it will cause you a little further. Yeah, it's it's not 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 a burden at all, my friend. Anyway, lots of love. Thanks, Star. Thank you. And a huge thank you to all of those lovely grown-up girls who have been in contact with all of their thoughts about the book as well. So I'm just going to run through a few of them because there's some really good ideas and feedback here. So Cook It Real Good, she said that American Dirt stayed with her for a long time and she felt that the purpose of the story was really to get us thinking about the treatment of asylum seekers and the lives they they left behind and how they risk it all for, for, for a better life. And she also believed that uh, Janine Cummins was very keen to share the story so that we could all demonstrate a bit more compassion and kindness, which I think is absolutely spot on. Now, Karen underscore Sepp, she loved it. She thought it was very, very well written, but she didn't enjoy the reading experience because she had a constant feeling of dread. I get that. Uh, But regardless of the controversy, she thought that the book shone a light on a very dark experience, which many of us didn't know much about which was my experience too, Karen, absolutely. Now, my lovely friend Antoinette said she thought it was a really good read and that when she was real, when, when she was reading it, she didn't realise it was so controversial and that it was obviously a little bit close to home for our friends in the US. Uh, Jane Zell thought it was a great book, but not relaxing at all. Uh, it was thrilling from start to finish. And oh my goodness, Jane, I couldn't agree more. I just could not put it down myself. Oh, so Vicky, she loved it. She devoured it. She thought it was a real eye opener and induced compassion in her about a very global issue. Yep. Couldn't agree more, Vicky. Mel Giazza thought it was a great book. In fact, it was one of her favorites or the favorites of her book club. Carrie Ann, 1608, great read, and she'll definitely be looking for more of Janine's books. Yeah, I'm the same, Carrie. I'm going to seek out uh, some of them, particularly, I think, the uh, the story of her her brother and two cousins. I thought I think that'll be really interesting. Uh, Nat Mark Oscar, she has got this on her to-be-read pile and is looking forward to, to getting into it. Laura 9111, she said there were mixed reviews on the book at her book club, and I can see why. Now, the lovely Margot Mason, she loved it, and um, she also believes that everybody is entitled to feel safe and that the author did a really good job of raising awareness of this really important issue. 
So thank you all so much. I can't begin to tell you how wonderful it is when we get feedback from people and we can, and it starts, it starts my conversation with my guest. It really is so helpful. So thank you all so much. Now, our next book, which will be in about two weeks time, is How to Be Australian by Ashley Blunt. And I am so looking forward to getting into this. There has been so much banter and talk online about this book. And um, I am so looking forward to, to reading that in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. But if there is one thing I could ask of you, if you are enjoying listening to this podcast, and I really hope you are, I would be really grateful if you could rate and review it on the podcast app uh, from which you listen to it and also if you could share it with a friend it would be really really helpful uh, as we try and um, as we try and make this make this viable and make this a bit of a thing so thank you all again and lots of love and look forward to chatting soon Mm -hmm.